Our sermon thanks for today is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. Mark 10, 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them, lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Back in 2001, I was a junior in high school. It was a year that I had, uh, that was very disciplined in my cello practice, and so I decided to send a tape audition uh, for the Florida All-State High School Orchestra. That's how we handled it back then. I'm sure there's some sort of better technology nowadays. Much to my surprise, I would, much to my surprise, I was accepted. I was selected. So along with a few other friends, we went to the glorious city of Tampa, Florida, where the concert would take place. When we arrived there, there was one more audition. This audition was not an audition for us to be accepted into the orchestra. This was rather a sitting audition. Uh, this audition would determine whether uh, or not I would Uh, It would not determine whether or not I would play in the orchestra, but instead, which chair placement I would receive. There are five groups of strings in an orchestra, first violin, second violins, violas, cellos, and basses. Each of these groups are made up of multiple players, and the sitting arrangement usually goes in order of more skilled first chair to less skilled less chair. The first chair in its group is called the principal. The second chair is called the assistant principal. These are seats of honor. And I coveted those chairs. So I showed up for my sitting audition, and I completely blew it. I could sense how uncomfortable the judges were with my audition. They had half smiles on their faces 
as I walked away, but I thought perhaps they will have mercy on me. So I showed up for the first day of rehearsal, and the judges laid out on the chairs the name of the player along with their numbers. There were 12 chairs. So I did what was logical in my mind. By the way, never do this. I went to the first chair to see if my name was there. And it wasn't. So I looked at the second. And it wasn't there either. So I went down chair by chair, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And when I arrived at the 11th chair, there was my name. Perhaps if the fact that my name was found on the 11th chair was not enough to destroy my pride, as I picked up the flashcard, I noticed that there was another number that had been crossed out. The number was 12. The judges first thought I deserved the 12 chair, but somebody managed to underwork me in his audition. I remember that young man very well. He had a hard time staying awake in rehearsals. So, so my 11th chair wasn't so much for my skill as it was for his lack of. So I was number 12 who got to be number 11. All of this to say this day of glory was not so glorious after all. The glory that I expected, I never received. The honor that I wanted, I never received. And this is the situation that our disciples, especially James and John, find themselves in today, isn't it? They're expecting a seat of honor, a place of recognition, but this place does not belong to them. They're expecting glory that they have not earned. And why? Because they don't understand the way of glory. For them, glory is brought about by selfish ambition and vain glory. Glory is achieved by getting ahead of others and hoarding privileges. For them, glory is to lord over others in the way of the Gentiles, but Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. For Jesus, the way of glory is completely countercultural. For Jesus, glory does not come from recognition or status or fame. For Jesus, glory is not a pathway to trample over others, to oppress others, or to abuse others for Jesus the way of glory is the way of sacrifice and service the disciples struggled to understand this didn't they I mean first they were just struggling to understand who Jesus was chapters 1 through 8 of Mark was a journey for them they were called by Jesus to follow them, so they did, but they didn't really understand what they were in for. As they witnessed Jesus' teaching, his power healing authority, they were perplexed. 
perhaps the verse that better summarizes the disciples' experience in the first half of the Gospel of Mark is found at the end of Mark 4 when Jesus calms the seas and the disciples find themselves afraid, asking the question, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. But there's a shift at the end of chapter 8. Jesus asks his disciples a question this time. Who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. That's the answer to the question back in chapter 4. Who then is this? This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. But then another question is introduced in chapters 8 through 10. What kind of Messiah is he? Did he come to free us from the Romans? From this oppressive government that rules over us? Another way of asking this question is, for what purpose did Jesus come? And Jesus' answer is, I came to suffer. I came to die. As we saw last week in this section, Jesus predicts his death. A third time, we call this a passion prediction. And every time he has predicted his death, the disciples have responded in the most unexpected, prideful way. It's surprising, isn't it? In chapter 8, Jesus predicts his death, and Peter rebukes him. In chapter 9, again, Jesus predicts his death. And the disciples get into an argument about who the greatest among them is. And now, in chapter 10, Jesus predicts his death again. And so we come to the passage today where John and James ask him to give, to give them seats of honor. And why do the disciples do this? It's because they, like us, struggle with selfishness. And they need to be taught by Jesus that instead of embracing selfishness, they need to embrace suffering and sacrifice. So this is our outline for today. We're going to consider three words, selfishness from the disciples, and then the model of suffering and service from Jesus. So let's consider first selfishness. John and James were part of Jesus' inner circle, along with Peter. Remember, only the three of them went and were witnesses of the raising uh, of Jairus' daughter. Only James, John, and Peter were up in the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. They're called the sons of a man named Zebedee. We don't know much about Zebedee, other than he has an interesting name. But we also know that uh, if he's often referred to in Scripture, he was probably a man that was well known. So the reference to Zebedee indicated, oh, who are they? They're the son of Zebedee. Oh, we know Zebedee. Jesus also gave them the, the nickname back in chapter 3 of Boanerges, which is 
kind of like translated as sons of thunder. Likely because of their boldness, because of their youthful passion, John was probably very young when he was uh, a disciple of Jesus because he would go on to be the last of the apostles to die. We see John uh, back in chapter 9, right, rebuking um, a man who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Luke 9, there's an interaction between uh, the two brothers and Jesus where they ask Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on the Samaritans? And even in our passage today, we do see great folly from them, but we also see great boldness from them, don't we? A boldness to approach Jesus. They introduce their requests with a preemptive request. They say, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. So they, they're hoping that Jesus would say yes to this. But this is a prosperity gospel request, isn't it? It's the prosperity gospel disguised. It's a temptation that we all have. When we pray, we want God to do whatever we want. Jesus entertains them in their folly. So he asks them, what, what do you want me to do for you? So they respond, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. This, friends, is selfishness at the core. The sin of selfishness turns God into an idol that is there to simply fulfill our own desires. God, you must do whatever I want. Lord, do to me what I want. Lord, fulfill my desires. And then we begin to measure the faithfulness of God according to whether or not we have received what we believe we deserve. This request was pointless. This request was dead on arrival. Why? Because at the heart of this request, there was a desire for self-exaltation. At the heart of this request, that was a desire for self-glorification. James tells us, chapter 4, verse 3, that you ask and do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly. How so? To spend it on your passions. You see it? What did John and James want? They wanted their passions to be fulfilled. We want seats of glory, seats of honor. So we ask Jesus. But requests like this are not responded affirmatively by Jesus. Our prayers are so often filled with requests that are attached to our passions, aren't they? How much in prayer, how much time in prayer do we spend honoring God? Recognizing His glory. Seeking the face of God. Asking for His kingdom to come. And for His will to be done. 
Are our prayers filled with the glory and honor of God? If you're anything like me, instead, I often approach prayer as though I was handing to God a to-do list that must be accomplished on my behalf. A to-do list that is basically informed by my passions and how they may be satiated. So we present our requests to God so we may be so our will may be satisfied, our glory magnified, and our kingdoms edified. You may have heard of Megan Rapino, one of the greatest female soccer players in history, whose career was filled with great accomplishments for Team USA and yet tainted with her advocacy for immorality and a lack of patriotism. Megan Rapino accomplished great things in her career, but her later years were very disappointed and lackluster in performance and filled with defeats. This week, Rapino played her last match before her retirement, and early on in the game, she was pulled out because she injured her Achilles heel, an injury that is often career-ending anyway for soccer players. The end of her career was anticlimactic. Rapino's comments to the media after the game was, I mean, I'm not religious, I'm not a religious person or anything. And if there was a God, this, her injury, is proof there there isn't. Rapino's will is the same as the disciples here. And it is not different from ours. We all want God to make us great. And when he doesn't, we look at him skeptically. We want God to exalt us. We want God to fit, uh, we want for God to fit into our agenda. We want God to orchestrate our lives according to our will. And if he doesn't, then we turn our backs on him. But friends, the Christian life is not about coming to God in order for him to do what we want, but about learning to want what God wants. The Christian life is not about our desires as they are. The Christian life is about shaping our desires after God's desire. The Christian life is about bowing our will to his will, learning to desire his desires, learning to love what he loves and hate what he hates. How different all of this is from Jesus, isn't it? Who in the garden of Gethsemane cries out to the Lord, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. He doesn't stop there, does he? Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Notice how Jesus completely redirects the thoughts from self to suffering when it comes to his disciples. So let's consider now my second point. By the way, this is my lo longest point by far. 
suffering. Jesus immediately informs the disciples that they are they're wrong. They don't know. They don't understand what they're saying. They don't understand what they're asking for. But Jesus is not just saying that they're asking for the wrong thing. Jesus is saying that they don't understand even the danger that is implied with the request that they're making. Glory always comes with a price. But the disciples were asking for a privilege without understanding the steep price that it would require. At times, God denies our requests because we ask with wrong motives, right? To spend it on your, our passions. At times, God's, God denies our requests because we don't even understand what we're asking. We're asking for something that we think would be good for us, but ultimately, that thing would destroy us. We don't understand the implications of what we are asking. I mean, if parents were to fulfill every request that comes from children, ice cream and popcorn would be on the menu every day, wouldn't it? But parents know that that would lead children to destruction. Their health would be destroyed, right? So we know to say no to such requests. Or to say, not now, not at this point, to such requests. This is how God views us. We don't understand the end from the beginning. We don't understand the totality of the plans of God for our lives. But He does. And what are the implications of the requests that James and John were making? In order for Jesus to grant James and John their request, they would have to go through suffering beyond their ability to bear. That's the problem. It's not that Jesus wanted to not allow them to go through suffering. It's that the suffering would not yield glory, but it would yield destruction. Friends, we may try to find glory in this life, but we are destined to fall short in every attempt. The glory we seek is limited by the sin we choose. And if we accomplish any glory apart from Christ, it is never of eternal value. Do not be enticed by the vain glory that the world offers. Do not look at the wealthy and envy their wealth. Do not look at the popular and envy their popularity. Do not look at the wicked and think, why does he prosper and I don't? Instead, look to Jesus and learn to love his suffering. It's interesting that Jesus here draws a parallel between his suffering and the elements that he would establish for the ordinances of the church, Lord's Supper and Baptism. This is why we had our early readings in this service. Jesus is saying, you're not able to handle the suffering that I am going to handle. So you cannot receive the glory that I am going to receive. He poses a question still in verse 38. Are you able? To drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And the implied answer here is no. 
They, Jesus is asking a question with an implied answer. And the answer is no. Throughout the Old Testament, the wrath of God is compared to a cup that is filled, ready to be poured. Listen to Psalm 75, verse 8. We read earlier from Isaiah. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it to the dregs. So what is the cup that Jesus is saying that James and John would not be able to drink? It is the cup of the wrath of God. They're not able to satisfy the wrath of God. The righteous anger of God that was poured out on the wicked because of their sin. Likewise, baptism is a picture of the overwhelming judgment of God. After mentioning Noah and the flood, the apostle Peter draws a parallel between the flood and baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this. To this what? To the waters of judgment of God that were poured out in the flood. Baptism is a symbol of that. Baptism is a symbol of one being lowered into the waters of judgment of God. But just as Noah was spared the judgment of God by virtue of being united with the ark, when we are baptized, our union with Christ spares us of the judgment of God. So our sins have been judged. But they stayed in the water and we were protected from the wrath of God by Christ. So we're able to be raised, right? And you notice that baptism also compares our experience with burial. What stays buried? Our old self, our sin. And we're raised to a new life with Christ. So baptism, which corresponds to the flood, to the waters of judgment, now saves you. Oh, that's puzzling. I thought faith saves us. Well, keep reading. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. In other words, not as the physical aspect of it, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. In other words, the faith. Good conscience based on what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In other words, baptism spares us the judgment of God because we go through the waters believing that Jesus' work for us spares us from the wrath of God. Why? Because he drank the cup. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't drink the cup. You can't be baptized. Why? Because I must do those things for you. Jesus is basically asking the disciples, are you able to withstand the wrath of God? Of God. The implication is that they're not. But Jesus knew that the way of glory was the way of suffering. And suffering would be under the mighty, righteous, severe hand of the Father. But why did Jesus have to suffer under the wrath of God? Well, the first answer is because you and I couldn't. The wrath of God would be to us like consuming fire. It would destroy us. The wrath of God would be the end of us. We yield to sin. We yield to temptation. 
This is why Jesus is saying, John, James, you can't do, you can't go through the suffering in order to arrive in glory. Why? Because in order for you to arrive in glory, you must need to be refined by the fire of God. And if God pours out his wrath on you, you will die and you'll find no glory. Friends, you and I could not withstand the wrath of God by ourselves. We could not drink the cup. We could not go through the baptism. So this is why Jesus suffered. He suffered because no one else could. If anyone else could suffer instead of Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice is not necessary. If God could have sent an angel to suffer for us, then Jesus' death is not necessary. If another person could die to absorb the wrath of God for us, then Jesus' death is not necessary. But Jesus' death is necessary. Why? Because only Jesus is man and God. Only Jesus is able to identify with our human experience because he's man. And only Jesus is able to present a sinless, spotless, perfect sacrifice because he is God. So Jesus takes the cup, goes through the baptism, symbolic for his passion, right? Because James and John couldn't do it. And because you and I couldn't do it. But you know why else did Jesus take on the cross? It's not just because we couldn't do it. It's because he loves us. The cross is a place of love where Jesus says, your life is worth my sacrifice. Saving you is worth me humbling myself, leaving the halls of heaven, taking on humanity, suffering, growing, learning, being shamed, being accursed. It is worth all of those things. Why? Because if I didn't do it, you would never be able to do it for yourself. But I love you too much to let you experience the wrath of God. So I will take it on myself. And as Jesus on that cross died, he satisfied the wrath of God. And there's no wrath left for us to bear. There's no condemnation left for us. There is no sin that Satan could ever accuse us of. Because Jesus satisfied the wrath of God that was on us. Now notice in verse 39. James and John surprise us with their boldness here again. In response to Jesus' earlier question, they say, we are able. Are you able to drink the cup? Are you able to experience the baptism? And the answer that they give is, we are able. We're able to drink the cup. We're able to be baptized. But are they? I think the answer has to be no. But yes. Jesus doesn't say that they're wrong, does he? does he? No, no, they can't at that time endure the suffering for Christ. 
Jesus actually uh, does something that is very clever here. He doesn't throw away their answer, but he fixes their answer. Jesus doesn't say, yes, you are able. Jesus says, you will be able. You will be able. What Jesus is saying here, well, Jesus is saying two things. First, James and John were not able to suffer for Christ at that moment. But once they were transformed by the Holy Spirit, they would. They would. And as Scripture attests, attests to this, right? In Acts 12, we learn that, John, that James would go on to be the first of the martyrs, of the apostles. He would die. He would suffer for Christ. And then he finds his path through, to glory through his suffering. John, unlike James, would not die a martyr. He would live a long age. But he would find himself in exile in the island of Patmos. Where he would die alone. And he writes to the church. And he says to the church. To those who are called to be in the tribulation and in the kingdom. And that's who he dedicates the book of Revelation to. John understood the tribulation. He lived in it. But Jesus is saying something else here with this verb choice. Putting the verb in the future. When he says that they will, there is a prophetic certainty to this verb. Believers are not able to just suffer for Christ. Believers must suffer for Christ. Perhaps, I should have used this word instead, believers will suffer for Christ. Acts 14, 22 through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Now, the word must is fine. Keep it there. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when. Do you hear that? When. Not if, but when. When it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange were happening to you. So, suffering is part of the Christian life. It is necessary for the Christian life. So it is right for Jesus to say, you will suffer. You will be baptized. You will drink the cup. So let me say a few things here. First, brothers and sisters, let's embrace the reality of this age. We need to have a clear theology of suffering. If we are clear that suffering in this age fulfills God's purpose for our lives, when we are faced with fiery trials, we will understand the will of God. The best time to prepare for future suffering is right now. Second, brothers and sisters, if you are currently going through significant suffering, your suffering, friend, is not void of purpose. Whatever the suffering may be, it is preparing your soul for eternal life. So can I encourage you in the midst of your suffering to walk by faith and not by sight. Third, it's not a coincidence that Jesus makes allusion here to the ordinances of Lord's Supper and Baptism. These very ordinances symbolize our suffering with Christ and our hope of eternal life. In the, Lord's, in, in the Lord's Supper and Baptism, 
we become partakers of the suffering of Christ, but also of his glory. So when we approach the Lord's table, when we observe baptism, let us not be trivial about these things. And let us understand that these are the very means by which Jesus has provided an experience for us to suffer through him and to come to glory through him. You know, we often say that baptism and Lord's Supper is just a symbol. Let's drop the word just. It is a symbol. But it is much greater than a symbol. It's a proclamation that Christ died for us. And that he was buried and he rose again. And therefore, we can endure all things. The ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper preach the gospel to us. As they help us think, visualize, taste Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. But suffering must have a purpose. And so Christ, for Christ, the purpose of suffering is service. So let us turn to our last point, service. So the conversation broadens here, right? As the other ten realized the request that James and John had made, they were indignant, or angry, or upset. The disciples have been struggling with pride in this section of the Gospel of Mark. So it's not surprising that they're struggling here as well. Jesus does not deny that there are places of honor in heaven, right? He says, sure, there is a seat in my right hand, there's a seat in my left hand, but these places are not for me to give. For the Father, it doesn't really flesh out what that means more than there are some who will be honored. But Jesus didn't want his disciples to worry about honor in the age to come. He wanted them to worry about service in the present age. We live in a self-serving culture, don't we? Time is money. There are social ladders we must climb. There are financial ladders we must climb. There are church ladders we must climb. So we guard our time, our privacy, our agenda. We avoid people who take and look for people who give. We very often view people as a means to an end. We have goals in life and we must surround ourselves with those who advance of our agenda and not those who hinder it. This is exactly what Jesus says to the disciples in verse 42. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord, lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. So, but Jesus is saying this must not be so among you. Notice what strong language Jesus uses here. He's not tentative. He's not giving a suggestion. He's not hoping. He's not wishing. He's saying, if you are my disciples, you will not embrace 
worldly and unworldly understanding of greatness. Greatness for my disciples is made evident through service and not just superficial, partial, convenient service. Greatness will be manifest among my disciples as they become slaves for all. Now, also notice that Jesus is saying not that this must not be so among you. This will be so among you. This, Jesus is saying that the disciples will not be like the Gentiles. So, if you're a Christian and you're a business owner, a boss, a supervisor, you are obliged to serve those who are under you as though you are a slave to them. If you're a husband, you will show your love for Christ by laying down your life so that your wife may flourish. If you're a mom, as you serve your children, you're serving Christ. If you're a student, do not view other students as a competition, but as you're able to serve them and help them succeed, do it for the glory of Christ. Children, if you have younger siblings, and you love Jesus, you will treat your younger siblings well. You will love them. You will serve them. And you will give them your best toys. Why? Verse 45. Because Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. This verse gives us the purpose of Jesus' life. A servant for many. Who are the many? You and I. We are the many. The church. Those who have been ransomed by his death. That's what he's saying here. The death of Jesus accomplished specific salvation. The salvation of many. When Jesus sets himself to die, he accomplishes his purpose of saving those who would turn to him. So not a blood of not a drop of the blood of Christ was spilled in vain. It accomplished its purpose. Why? Because Jesus gave himself as a ransom. A payment. A payment for those who could not free themselves. But they were freed by the blood of Christ. And what great assurance we can have that if Jesus died to save us, that if we turn to him, we will be saved. You know, I've gone on to think a lot about my experience in 2001 in that orchestra. And I've come to realize that it didn't really matter which chair I sat. Because whatever notes the principal cellist played, I played too. He was in the concert and so was I. You know, he experienced the rehearsals. Um, his name is in the historical list of Florida uh, High School All-State Orchestra, and so is mine. 
And I came to realize that thinking too much about where we would sit in heaven is beyond the point, isn't it? Because when we understand that we had no honor and no glory in order to come to heaven, and yet we receive the glory of Christ and the honor of Christ, and we we'll be, will be in heaven with him, friends, that is more than enough, isn't it? I mean, do you think you're going to be in heaven complaining about where you sat? You're not going to complain. You're just going to be so awestruck that you're even there. That you're going to be saying, thank you, Jesus. Because a humble seat in heaven is a seat of eternal glory. So friends, let us not worry about the glory that this world preaches to us. And let us see Christ and know that he is worthy of all glory. And he died for us. And if he died for us, it is enough for us to receive his sacrifice. So let us rejoice in the honor and in the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, help us, help us be humble. Help us know that there is no greater glory than to be found in Christ. And Lord, if we have Christ, we have all that we need. Father, help us view others as those that are here to be served by us and not serve us. And help us love Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us. We pray, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.